Welcome to episode three of the Think Beginning Not End podcast powered by Vanden. I'm your host, Simon Van Leuven, and today we got a treat for you. We have Viv Lister from Bespoke Law. Now, Viv is an expert when it comes to shipping any consumer goods or branded goods around the world, and we deep dive into that topic, plus cover waste, recycling, and so much more. Now, this was filmed back in November, and so many of the topics we cover in this podcast are still relevant today. It's slightly longer, so settle back and enjoy it. I'm sure you guys will love it. Hey everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Think Beginning Not End show from Vanden and today we're delighted to have Viv Lister from Bespoke Law. Now obviously Viv's a lawyer and uh, Viv works with Australian household brands producing consumer goods and she's very versed in their decision making process that goes on inside those businesses about their social and environmental strategies and helps them with moving things around the world whether that's the consumer good itself or the product or the waste or the byproduct uh, when the when when those products are being used, right? Nailed it. <laughs> um, Viv, we've got to know each other. We've, we've been working together a little bit and uh, um, I, I met you a bit over a year ago um, in some waste industry discussions. Yeah. So um, if you could tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, and what you do and... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you said, um, I work with consumer um, brands in Australia and overseas. And um, one of the uh, areas that I work in is moving things around, regulated things. So that can be food, cosmetics or waste, because waste is a really regulated um, product. Um, And when I say waste, I'm also talking about those recovered materials, um, which I think waste is sometimes a misnomer. Um, because they're, they're very valuable resources. And I think that's where we, um, we met and hit it off talking about recovered materials and how to, um, how to make waste part of the everyday conversation with consumers and, and businesses. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I do. Um, so it's a really big topic, obviously, in Victoria, but like globally, you know, we're seeing lots of things where waste is ending up in the wrong places or mm-hmm. branded products ending up in the wrong places. But if we just come back to Victoria here... We've obviously got a lot of new guidelines for the for the waste and recycling industry that are being enforced by the EPA. Um, but what I want to try and talk about is, um, you know, how how regulation actually can have that positive impact on industry as opposed to, you know, some people look at it as a negative. Yeah. But there are some really positive aspects of it. And, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of ways that regulation helps. First of all, it really levels the playing field so that those um, businesses that are doing the right thing aren't at a disadvantage because regulation and compliance can cost money and it can also mean that you can't go after the quick buck. So when some companies are doing the right things and others aren't, it does it creates an imbalance. Um, regulation and well-enforced regulation means that everyone's in the same position and um, it encourages businesses to to do the right thing and then to comply. Another element which um, was touched on at the VWMA state conference a year ago, um, one of the speakers spoke about social licence and I think that's such a key thing for businesses in the waste and resource recovery industry 
Um, you operate in the community and the community need to give you a social licence to do that. And the new EPA regulations are very much focused on acknowledging um, that the environment and protection of the environment is part of a bigger community, um, I guess, necessity, um, because it, it creates this new, um, new opportunity for people in the community to enforce or to take legal action against um, non-compliant businesses. Um, and that's a new element of these regulations. So you don't have to sit back and wait for the EPA to prosecute. You can bring a civil action. Um, and it also creates different levels of um, compliance requirements, which we haven't seen before. Um, when you have a compliant waste and resource recovery centre, um, hopefully the intention is that it has less of an impact on the surrounding community. And, and that's important for our um, facilities to keep operating and keep dealing with our waste. Yeah, the, um, the positive thing that we've noticed ourselves has particularly been like from our UK facility. Um, mm -hmm. most, most people know we have that facility there. We don't have one in Australia, but um, the thing that we've noticed is the regulation over there that is in place, it actually makes you operate at that high level. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, it's a high entry level into the industry. Yeah. Um, there's a higher cost, um, higher cost of operating. Mm -hmm. But the positive that we've noticed that's come from that is it actually in general makes you a better, safer operator, which yeah. creates efficiencies in, in themselves. Absolutely, yeah. and, and safety elements, and that goes up. Um, there are so many studies to show that when you have a, a neat and tidy, um, whether it's a construction site or factory operations, that the safety um, record also, or safety performance also improves. Um, yeah. I think that concept of housekeeping um, on a construction site it's not only having neat and tidy so there's less litter around, but it's also, yep. it has great safety um, impacts too. Yeah, I think there's like there's a lot of great literature that's been written about mm -hmm. safety culture driving productivity. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think, yeah, personally, I, I think the, the waste and recycling industry has a positive future because there's actually that opportunity gap to get, get to that level. Yeah, and, and one of the things EPA um, has been working on, and WorkSafe as well, is eliminating those um, those rogue elements from the waste industry. And when you go out to sites um, and you see you know, a kilometre out, you start to see the litter around there, mm. um, sort of getting more and more as you get towards the facility, you think, well, of course the community here is going to have an issue with the fact that they want to build another um, you know, yeah. resource recovery centre just down the road. But when you have an operation that is really conscious and, and runs a tight ship in terms of the, the impacts, whether it's dust, noise, um, blown away litter, um, odour, uh, all the things that can, can come out or emanate from a waste facility. Um, when you have a, a well-run facility and also social licence, um, I think we, all, we can all benefit. Yeah, and and Viv, are there any examples, you know, from from your experience where you've seen some new regulation come in mm -hmm. that's been a positive impact on another industry? Well, it's pretty early days, but at the moment we're seeing um, some good statistics coming from the e-waste ban. Okay. And um, that was a ban that was brought in uh, 1 July this year. Um, and a number of councils, I think including Whitehorse Council in particular, reported that even in the months leading up to the introduction of the ban, there was a significant increase in the number or the, the volume of um, e-waste, so that's electrical waste, being brought into um, the drop-off centres, the drop-off points, 
for um, processing, which means that they're taking out the really valuable minerals like silver, um, copper, gold yeah. um, from those products and you know, re- reusing them um, and not ending up having your kettles and your toasters and your old computer screens um, in landfill. Yeah. It, I, I mean, that kind of thing is, is that whole bringing the community on the journey. And if, it's, if yeah. anything, like you said, it's a great example that yeah. if we set a standard, we set a regulation, mm-hmm. we tell the people about it and we educate them about it, then we can bring them on that journey yeah. you know, and stop that material going from landfill, yeah? Absolutely. I think another one is the, the plastic bag um, ban. Now, th- this one has ups and downs, but if nothing else, it's really brought the conversation home to like to everyday household conversation about plastic and plastic use. And we saw um, shortly after that plastic ban, that plastic bag ban in Coles <laughs> and Woolies, um, the little shoppers. Yeah. And there was a real conversation about what, why are you doing that? Why are you introducing plastic yep. when we've just had this ban? And I think had those little shoppers come in at any other time, it probably just would have gone under the radar and all we would have heard about was what a fantastic marketing campaign it was. But instead we had a really important conversation about, oh, this is just more plastic junk. The, the bit I didn't understand about the little shoppers, and I'm not being critical of it, but when you think oh, about... <laughs> when um When you think about um, some of those brands that participated in the little shoppers, mm-hmm. and on one sense I've got a very public message about, hey... We're making our bottle from recycled material or mm-hmm. we're making our consumer good from recycled material. Mm-hmm. That's great, but then now now we're going to, like you just said, we're now flooding the market with this whole bunch of other plastic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's the wrong message, isn't it? It's completely the wrong message. And um, at the time it stirred like a bit of controversy, but it was still the most successful marketing campaign of any um, supermarket yeah. in Australia's history. They recently re, re, redid it, I think, with the Lion King or something oh, else. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, I think because we've all come that much further in the last year in terms of consciousness of plastic, that it was pretty quickly um, withdrawn. And instead, they've got a new um, new one, which I love. It's like, hey, ho, let's grow. And it's oh, yeah, the little grow. seedlings. Yeah. Yep. That's something I could get behind. I think yeah. that, that's brilliant. Like, use plastic for things that we need, yep. not these little figurines but yeah we, we digress no no I, yeah, <laughs> but I, I think part of what getting back to your question was um i think the positive is having the conversations and like thinking about it brings it into the consciousness and the conversations that we're all having yeah yeah, yeah no i agree um, and you know the other part of with the plastic bag ban is how many of those new single? Well, they're not. They're not the they're same. Reusable. Yeah, they're <laughs> reusable plastic bags. Yeah. You know the amount of people that I see walking into Woolworths, Coles, mm-hmm. and continually buying them. Yeah. You got a question like, do we need to take that a step further as well? Because to mm-hmm. be honest, I see a lot of them on the back end when we go to processing facilities. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of them on the back end that are being collected mm-hmm. for recycling, and you can clearly see. They've only been used once, and a yeah. lot of them are, are, seem quite new. And in terms of recyclability, are they recyclable? Yeah, they are recyclable, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that's the question is, I think I'm fairly informed, and I still don't know these basic questions about what is and isn't recyclable and, yeah. and what's the best option. But from a, a consumer perspective, 
I look at that and think, well, you've got a ban coming in pretty soon um, on um, any single-use plastic bag, which is under 35 microns. So that's your the thin, yep. definitely single-use. You might line a bin with it or something, but that's it's pretty much that's its life. They're going to be banned across Victoria. But how many of those do you have to take out of the environment for one of those um Thicker ones. The thicker ones. Yeah. And if, if we're just replacing them, then are we actually doing anything in terms of reducing the amount of plastic going to landfill? It's a good point. I, one thing I've picked up on, and I haven't checked one lately, so, mm-hmm. um, but even those re, um, re, reusable plastic bags mm-hmm. that you can use more than once, apparently, yeah. um, I've noticed that they don't even have any information on them about what you should do with them once you finish using mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked one lately, but the last time I had one, there was yeah. nothing on the labelling side of it as well, mm-hmm. which comes back to that whole consumer understanding of what yeah. to do with it once you finish with it. And I think touching on labelling, one of the key things that we're all looking for is labelling about the amount of reclaimed or, or um, recovered material that's going into the product. So as a consumer... We want to be able to make those conscious decisions and that's where the labelling um, aspect could really be improved. Um, is there any recovered plastic going into those plastic bags? And um, what about other products on the shelf? Because um, that, that's a labelling that we just don't have at the moment. So that's actually one opportunity, I think, um, and we've had this conversation with so many of our clients, is um, if you're wanting to really leverage the good things you're doing, then it needs to be on the label. And I think that there's there's so little transparency about that and it actually discourages businesses from making the investment to change to using reused and recoverable materials because there's no clear way to you know, trumpet to the world that they're doing those good things. So, so, so Viv, do you think uh, some brands are concerned um, about 100% knowing that if they're going to put it on their product that it's from recyclable are you sort of saying that some of those brands are uncomfortable unless they know specifically or...? In terms of the transparency yeah. of the supply chain? Um, I'm not sure that, that these initial conversations we're having, they've even really thought through to mm. that point. Yep. I think it's more if they're going to make the investment to change what they're doing yeah. and they want to get credit from their, their customers for yeah. doing so. And without a labelling system that's recognised yep. and um, really gets that message across quickly as yep. in they'll they'll be able to leverage that investment i think it's um it's a difficult decision to make um against all the other um yep. you know priorities out there and opportunities but yep. what you're talking about with the supply chain i think that comes into um the next part so when a company does decide to go down that path yeah um then then there's the fear of well, if we make this claim can we substantiate it? And, yep. and that transparency of, of the whole supply chain coming back to them, then that, that comes into it too. Yeah. And you guys work in, in that area too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting topic. I mean, even people changing, um, changing the mould of a product, right? Mm-hmm. Because the recycled, um, the product made from recycling content might behave differently. Mm-hmm. So some of the discussions we've had with manufacturers is when we transition to more recycled content, it actually could change our production facilities and these are things that people don't really think about but yeah there are costs involved 
in changing the entire supply chain because mm-hmm. essentially that's what can happen here. Absolutely. And when you're talking about things like cosmetics and food and um, the stability testing, and that stability testing is done in the final consumer packaging. So if that composition is changing, then the whole stability testing needs to be redone. And that's a huge expense yep. um, and, and a risk because if that formula doesn't react the same way in a, a different type of packaging or a different polymer, it's... Yeah, it's a it's a big setback. Yeah. So lots of investment, and I think that's where companies working towards the twenty twenty five um, changes to consumer packaging, um, where all consumer packaging will need to be one hundred percent recyclable, um, compostable, or uh, what's the other one? Biodegradable. Biodegradable. Yeah. Um, then they're really needing to start now in terms of finding um, materials that will contain um, liquids and creams and gels um, and and then be easily recyclable, compostable. Do you think it's happening fast enough? Um, I think there was a little bit of that, like burying our heads in the sand and it will go away yeah. probably for the first year. Um, but now that big companies are getting on board with the research and development that's needed, um, we're slowly, I think, mm. you know, everyone else is following suit. And Unilever announced um, last week, I think it was, that they will be um, using uh, 50% um, virgin material. So that's 50% non-virgin material yeah. by 2025, yeah. um, which is is a really good step. And, and they said that was part of um, working towards those um, obligations yeah. in Australia as well um, with consumer packaging. When big companies make changes, it, yeah. it helps bring everyone else along. Yeah, yeah, I think exactly that. They're one of the biggest yeah. consumer packaging companies in the world, so mm. leading yeah. by example. Um, yeah. We've spoken a lot about HS codes, mm-hmm. and um, I'll delve a little bit and then I'll get you to explain what a HS code yeah, is. But, sure. you know, what, what we're seeing is uh, illegal exports or more importantly illegal imports by people Mm -hmm. changing the hs code so in Mm -hmm. some cases for example um ldp film instead of it being under a scrap hs code on the bl Mm -hmm. it's being imported as a product Mm -hmm. which which is illegal but um what is for everyone out there what's a hs code what does it mean so the hs code the harmonized system code is um a series of numbers which is um an internationally recognised system of classifying everything. So yep. that's, and when I say everything, the, the basis of the HS code system is that absolutely everything can be classified into one of the HS codes. Yeah. Um, and that, that comes down to literally the granular level. And I'm talking about, say, for example, um, tyres. Shredded tyres, granulated tyres, waste tyres, new tyres four-wheel drive tyres, performance road tyres, they all end up having a different um, HS code. It starts with four numbers and, uh, sorry, the two-number heading and then another two numbers and you've got your four-number HS code and then another two numbers as you get further and further down the classification. Where you have smuggled waste is where, say, you might have um, waste tyres. They'll have one code you classify them as granulated waste tyres, which is a commodity. And um, where I've seen this happen in particular is Vietnam. So if the HS code is the code for um, granulated tyres, then Vietnam accepts those because they're basically pellet size and it comes down, I think, 
two and a half centimetres yep. on average pellet size. That's a commodity that they can easily um, use in yes. industry. So they'll let that HS code through. So when the container arrives, um, it comes with an import declaration and the port authority sees the HS code and goes, yep, that's fine, there it goes. Where actually inside that container, there are scrap tyres or waste tyres which have not been granulated and are full of metals and other contaminants and hazardous um, chemicals um, which are picked up from the road and just in yep. the actual tyre themselves. That's, that's a scrap material that is very difficult to process and is a burden on the industry that it's, it's going to. And usually in Vietnam, they're burnt for fuel or they're transported um, by road into China where they're burnt again for fuel or potentially processed but in um, at a cost or a price that is it, it indicates um, modern slavery type conditions so it's, it's not a good thing either way and the the issue with HS codes is unless each container is opened and then checked there's no way of knowing so, so this is where these containers are being found right maybe the authorities are aware of the particular code Absolutely. that things are being changed to, so then they've just mm -hmm. flagged anything within those particular exactly. code areas and have gone. And that's what was happening. And so um, they've just, it, it's pretty obvious which are the easy ones to yep. tweak. It's enough about a couple of numbers, just saying that they're, you know, they're shredded or pelleted rather than scrap, and through it goes. So the port authorities are very, or customs authorities, are very aware of which are the common, um, common HS codes used for smuggling. And Vietnam has cracked down on it. It comes, it, it applies across the board in terms of paper scrap, um, fabric scrap, um, tyre scraps. So they've just stopped taking them. And one of the issues um, in Vietnam is that the um, Operation Green Fence, which was China's policy before National Sword, yep. um, came down very quickly without any warning, which is quite typical of a lot of Chinese regulations. Um, and Vietnam was a bit caught out because they were getting all of these container loads coming through and all of a sudden they couldn't ship them um, by road across the border. So the importers or consignees just didn't pick them up because there was no market for them anymore. And we get into this area of abandoned cargo, right? Absolutely, and yeah. they sit on the wharf. And that's a huge problem because there's no authority to deal with them. And um, I think there's one port in Vietnam which has over 5,000 containers of smuggled waste which have been abandoned and somebody's paying demurrage on these containers which mm. adds up pretty quickly when you've got a hundred containers um, sitting on the on the wharf there. So um, Viv, who's like when you get to that point of um, abandoned cargo mm -hmm. like yeah ultimately who's responsible for that like mm. you know when everyone runs for the hills <laughs> yeah but who's who's responsible for that and I guess it comes down to inco terms and all that kind of thing but yeah. It does to a point, and um, Incoterms are one of my favourite things to talk about, but um, it's probably a whole other podcast yeah. on Incoterms. Yeah. Um, because of the way that international shipping and, and um, international trade does allow certain parties to just abscond and disappear, um, shipper, shipping lines are very clever in contractually making everybody responsible. So the first party that they can actually pin down usually is is the party that will be responsible and customs take the same approach so that could even come right back to the person who loaded those goods in mm -hmm. that container yeah 
could be made 100% responsible Absolutely. for those shipping costs, mm-hmm. the marriage costs. Yeah, and I've seen freight forwarders actually be the only party left standing when the company who consigned the goods, so the company who had the stockpile of tyres, that was a shell company that disappeared, um, the consignee never picked up the goods in China. Wow. And so the only party that was around was the freight forwarder. And they're named on the bill of lading, the terms, you know, that they're usually size five font and you can't really read them without a magnifying glass. And then you see, yeah, every single party named there as, as liable and responsible to the shipping line um, and to marriage fees start stacking up. So yeah. then it's a matter of um, going over and, and trying to get an authority from a party who's absconded in Vietnam to sign over authority so that you can deal with the contra- the containers. Um, and one one matter I was involved with, um, we found found the absconded um, consignee okay. and got the containers assigned over to us so we could bring them back to Australia and um, dehire them and pay for them to be processed again. That was a very expensive exercise. So um, the, again, the knock-on effect of that is uh, rogue operators, mm-hmm. Um, or not so much rogue operators, but people selling to other people that they know nothing about and mm-hmm. done no downstream checking, mm-hmm. um, creating problems for people that do follow the right process and the right procedure. Absolutely, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I know from the shipping companies now, like to shipping into certain countries, they're mm-hmm. quite nervous. Or in some cases, they won't ship scrap plastic anywhere. Yeah. And some of them have pulled out of a lot of that, mm-hmm. that shipping. So. Well, it's... it's- difficult to get insurance now for those scrap materials because um, there is this huge unknown cost or potential cost. Um, for example, going back to Vietnam again, if the customs authority gets wind of the smuggled materials, unless you can find the absconded consignee, um, the, the containers go into a process where they are then inspected by the customs authority there's a two-year backlog on that so the containers will sit there for about two years waiting to be inspected that's a lot of demarrage and is that just because of the sheer volume of abandoned cargo there yeah yeah wow and there's a cost so you pay for the inspection you pay for the destruction and you pay for the two years of demarrage while the containers sit there waiting for their turn Mm. Um, and understand that that cost isn't just a you know arbitrary making money when you've got a container that you know doesn't contain or you suspect doesn't contain what the hs code is there's so much risk of what could be in that container that the authorities have to take a very cautious approach to opening it and that can even be the extent of wearing full hazmat gear and um sort of i guess um quarantining that container because when it's opened it's been in the heat it's been in the cold it's been tipped around you literally don't know what's, yeah. what's going to come out yeah yeah you would just wouldn't know what what's in there mm-hmm. um so which brings us on to to the next little topic that mm-hmm. i want to um, pick your brains on is where do we stand um with when companies are promising that it's being recycled mm-hmm. and they're just selling it to anyone and yeah. they don't really know and there's been some uh, examples and we just talked about it really but mm-hmm. where we know cargo is being sent to a particular country mm-hmm. and um, it may be then being smuggled across the border. Mm. Um, we start to then look into other rules and regulations like modern slavery. Yeah. 
And it's something like we speak about, you know, asking where it really goes. Mm -hmm. Because when, if you're a contractor or you're a service provider to a brand, for Mm -hmm. example, um, I always talk about the most valuable asset in that whole process is the brand itself. And if you're doing the work for that brand, then you need to ensure that downstream, everything that you're doing is looking at the brand first and Mm -hmm. foremost. And so... If we're seeing things that are going into other countries and being smuggled across, this whole modern slavery law, I, I don't know a lot about it, but yeah. it, it's, it seems to be something very prevalent right now. It is, and it's, it's so um, intricately weaved, weaved through everything that we consume and also the waste industry because I think it comes down to that question of, and, and I know um, Vanden is is really big on this transparency point and has been for a long time, but it comes down to why if the cost is reasonable and if it's if it's really too cheap or it's a, it seems like a too good a deal, then mm. it probably is, um, and it may not be um, it may not be evident from the people you're dealing with because it's a you know it's a reputable business it's they seem to have great operations in australia but if they are offering prices that don't stack up in terms of um labor price in australia then i think questions seem to be asked or is is this is this um commodity actually being processed here and while some of it might be most of it might be going somewhere else where it's cheaper to, to process. Yeah, I, I mean, occasionally we have discussions where we might be competing for someone for a batch of commodities mm-hmm. and I might get told that they have another buyer at a certain level mm-hmm. and it's so far above everyone else. I, I normally say to them, if that's the price that you've got and you're yeah. very comfortable sending it to where it's going, mm-hmm. then knock yourself out. But yeah. we're not going to get involved in that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes down to that. If it's too good to be true, Yeah. generally it's too good to be true, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we talked earlier about $5 T-shirts. And we're, I think we're becoming, as consumers, we're becoming more aware of the fact that you can't grow the cotton and process it and then cut and sew a T-shirt and then ship it to Australia for $5. Yeah. Um, and also have you know, each... Um, each industry along the way taking a bit of a profit it's it's not possible um if the working conditions are um what we would consider to be not of modern slavery um type conditions and the same applies in the waste and resource recovery industry in terms of processing um and that profit has to come from somewhere Mm. um if you're talking about a much higher price they're getting for commodity um yeah, it's, it's we've got to think about, um, I guess, what's reasonable for the work involved in it. Um, so the modern slavery legislation is um, aimed at um, companies who have a group consolidated annual revenue of 100 million and above, okay. which sounds like it wouldn't um, really affect too much of Australia's industry. But where it does come into play across the board is that those companies um, who are required to report will need to audit their supply chains yeah. and their business operations. So I think it's um, it's a regulation that is going to affect most of Australian businesses in um, that they, they'll have to provide data to their customers um, about 
what it is, um, you know, their, their business operations and supply chains. Yeah. How, how fast do you see that happening at the moment? Well, the first report um, reporting year will end next financial year, so um, mid-2020. And then um, businesses who are required to report have got, I believe it's four months, to publish their, um, their statement. And that statement um, needs to be signed off at board level. So we're working with businesses now yeah. to start um, doing a bit of a gap analysis on okay. what they do and don't know because um, it is possible as a reporting entity to publish a report that says you don't know um, about the risk of modern slavery, you've made inquiries, you can't verify it and um, you know, really put a, a very, um, I guess, surface level um, type effort into um, uncovering the risks of modern slavery. Yep. That's compliant in that you've published the statement um, potentially. Well, you'd have to go through a bit more detail, but you, you could essentially publish a report that says you don't know what the risks are. Um, in terms of how that will go down with the public, um, I wouldn't recommend that yeah. to, to any company. So we assume that most businesses will want to identify um, you know, the, the black holes in, in where they don't know about the risks and address those so that when it comes to time to preparing the statement that's going to be published, um, they can say with a degree of certainty on, on a large proportion of their supply chain and business operations. So companies who've been reporting on these types of things for some years um, under other regimes, um, you see statements such as we, uh, we've addressed the risk and are comfortable there's no bond slavery in 98% of our supply chain, in 2% there is some risk and this is what we're doing about it on a yep. year-by-year basis to address those risks. Um, and that's, it's not 100%. But that's a really great place to be in, and that even getting to you know, ninety-five percent takes a, a very concerted and um, sustained effort to address. Do, um, do, the, um, do these businesses currently have the tools to really downstream audit their supply chain? Not at problem? the moment, but that's something I think we're working on. Um, the UK modern slavery legislation came in um, earlier than Australia's, and so companies have published. Um, reports on that but those reports are much um, higher level than Australia's um, regime requires and um, I think the, the companies who do have the ability to report have been doing so because it's part of their social and environmental responsibility um, and obligations to, sh- to shareholders to, to disclose um, that type of information. Yep. So we're looking at um, a number of ways of gathering that information and it really depends on the entity itself and its structure. Um, multinationals obviously have a really different type of approach because you're needing to ask um, related entities um, for that information as opposed to suppliers and there's a different dynamic um, in terms of leverage to get that information. Yeah, it, I mean that just sounds like a really big body of work that these companies will need, need to go and do, yeah? it's. It's huge. Mm. I really can't understand understate how big it is, but it's it's really um, it's really interesting area because it it ha- it brings to the front these conversations within a company about what their priorities are, and um, working with a number of different companies, I, it's a stark difference in some companies as to how to approach it. Some are um, really taking it as an opportunity to find those small areas where they 
perhaps not performing as well as they think they sh- they could be and really focusing on that so they can have the best possible outcomes in terms of reducing the risk of modern slavery. Other companies we're working with um, are well aware that that's not where they, they sit and they are really looking to maintain their business model while complying with the law. It's a, it's a different priority and um, either way, um, it's, it's making those companies have the conversations. Yeah, I, I, thought, uh, I thought my job was interesting, <laughs> but there are so many, I'm getting so much out of this today because yeah. there are so many parts or so many elements to a supply chain mm-hmm. that are, um, mm. yeah, that have to be compliant. And when you start to really dig deep, mm. the whole ask better questions and you'll get better answers, mm-hmm. that, that's what a lot of this is, mm. you know, there's so much to this that. Yeah. Most people out there don't don't know that's related to... There's a moral element too, and I think this is something that um, everyone's still grappling with, is that um, if you are, say, for example, in, in makeup, um, mica is a particular um, ingredient that makes everything sparkly and shimmery and it's very pretty, but it's um, also known as one of the... Um, having the highest rates of child, um, child labour in mining it. Um, if companies um, who currently use mica in their um, makeup products, they just pull out of the um, mica yeah. um, industry entirely. One of the moral issues around it is that um, if companies who are using um, mica um, simply pull out of the mining um, that they're currently doing, there are whole communities which are dependent on that, um, that mica mining to sustain them. And while the practices might be abhorrent by our standards, if that community suddenly has no way of supporting itself, is that a morally better outcome because we've prevented child labour? And it's a difficult question and it's a difficult conversation to have and we're all very uncomfortable about the idea of child labour, but is that community better off for having lost its entire industry? Yeah, it's it, it, that. Yeah, I mean that point alone. I've never thought about it like that. But you're mm-hmm. right. In in some of those countries, that's their only way of mm-hmm. putting food on the table. Or, yeah. Or shelter or a house or whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was part of a project um, in Myanmar um, a few years ago, and we were going through the um, social and environmental auditing for um, their financial funding um, through the bank, and the bank requires very thorough um, auditing across child labour and um, Indigenous land rights, everything that you can possibly think of um, so that the bank can report to shareholders that it only funds um, socially responsible projects. Um, And one of the auditors said to me, you can't come to this part because I take a different approach (laughs) to what's on the paper. And I spoke to her about it later and she said, if she reported on the child labour um, that was part of this project, those children wouldn't be able to work in this factory and they would become street prostitutes. So she thought that her job was better done by ensuring that they only worked 12-hour days, that they were given a place to live and that they were given meal breaks. And that was actually a better outcome for those children mm. than reporting on them being there and then having them turned out and that's that's the reality of of it um, and I think we can't just take um, our social responsibility as ticking a box and 
for filling out um, the criteria that we need to report in, in an annual report to shareholders or the modern slavery reporting regime. It needs to be a holistic approach. Yeah, like there are there are so many down, like you know consequences. You know that mm-hmm. to hear if those young girls you know became street prostitutes. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's totally not what anyone would want. It's not a better outcome at all. Yeah. 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 Um, complicated. Complicated. Mm. Man, you work in lots of very interesting areas. Just want to jump into chain of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's a lot of talk about chain of responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. It probably even goes with the discussion we're just having now. But for people out there, what does chain of responsibility mean? Because everyone talks about it, but yeah. what, what does it really mean? In the heavy vehicle sense? Yeah. It means um, that every party in the um, supply chain has an obligation to ensure the safety of the transport activities so far as reasonably practical. So there's an understanding that um, it's not just the driver who's responsible for the safety on the road. It's the consignee, it's the packer, it's um, the, the person who's loading and the person who, or the, the company who, um, has the the DC facility and all those parties in the supply chain influence different elements of their task but they also set expectations of others in that supply chain and so it's about um, recognizing that those influences together um, need to be working towards safety and preventing um, unsafe practices so um, one of the one of the key areas that we discuss with clients and it's often um, say a distributor and they'll have um, products um, dropped off to them that they DC it's the suppliers um, carrier they just literally receive the goods and so well, you know what do we have to do with this and everything I mean they set the expectations in terms of delivery times bump in times um, whether or not they have a rest area for the driver um, those sorts of things have have a big impact and also in the contracts and as lawyers um, we understand that you sign the contract and sometimes it goes in top drawer and you don't look at it again but there's a there's an, an obligation to ensure that your contracts don't require um, certain things that would encourage um, unsafe practices or speeding or breaching fatigue laws um, and that's it's a big thing for the transport industry and also retail and distribution to recognize yeah, um, definitely that whole fatigue thing, it probably hits home for mm-hmm. more of a general audience because mm-hmm. when fatigue happens out on the road, it's it's generally bad yeah. and that's we're causing accidents and things like that. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the whole chain of responsibility is really about, mm-hmm. like you said, ensuring all those little steps along the way, they, they all have a role to play and it's everyone's yeah. responsibility to do it, yeah? Absolutely. I think as consumers, we um, where we see the real changes that are, um, I guess, making the, putting a lot of pressure on the transport industry is when we buy something from the Iconic or um, Amazon and we expect it delivered mm. that day or the next day, that means that all those transport activities in, in getting it to us um, are put under huge time pressure. And as consumers, as we expect that more and more is just the standard, um, that has impacts across the industry um, and that needs to be managed um, in a competitive retail environment. Um, we can't have that impacting on the safety of transport 
Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed just when we're in factories, just mm-hmm. the way automation's slowly coming in, it's yeah. going to change a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, um, not change it, but hopefully contribute to, to better outcomes in terms of chain responsibility yeah. as, as automation kicks in, mm-hmm. potentially autonomous vehicles. Well, I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, that's a controversial, but in, in the mining industry where they were introduced, it brought in a lot of... Um, a lot less interaction of very heavy vehicles and things with humans, which is dangerous. Yeah. Um, when you look at people walking through the stacks and um, yeah. operating, um, it's it's not a safe environment. And if we can automate some of that, that's great. Another way automation is, is really helping is um, in terms of weighing. Um, so when you're loading a vehicle, it's really important that the balance is right. Yes. And if the... If there's a sort of a rougher, I think that weighs, you know, approximately this this much, and then that happens again and again with multiple different consignments on one truck, that can end up with the truck being completely unbalanced. Whereas if all that weighing is happening um, automatically and it's been calculated as the load and then balanced, uh, we've got a safer safer load. Yeah, and a safer vehicle out there on the road, right? Absolutely, yeah. So quickly, just coming right back to where we started from. Well, I can't even remember where that was now. Yeah, so coming right back to there, um, with the whole crisis and recycling and mm-hmm. waste and all these kind of things, from a from an out not not from the outside, but from someone you know working in that regulatory space. Yeah. If there was one particular area Viv, that you see needs urgent attention or um, could do with more focus, what is yeah. it? I think it's education. Um, I think, so if we were talking about waste five or six years ago, and I used to, and it would get some funny looks, yeah. like waste. Yeah. But now it's it's something that everyone's talking about, everyone's conscious of. Um, you know, whether it's school kids who are learning about school or our grandparents who are sort of a bit bewildered by it, but they know it's, it's yeah. topical. The conversation's there, but the education isn't there and so we've got all these people wanting to do the right thing and not knowing what that is and I think the starkest picture of that is walking along the Flinders Street train station and they've got those bags oh, yeah, the clear bags, yeah. yeah and so they're clear and you can see exactly what's in them and the recycled one and the general rubbish one both filled up to the same level and they both have about the same number of coffee cups in them and that's just such an indication that Nobody knows which one to put it in. When and just, I don't know which yeah. one to put it in. Well, yeah, I mean, and the fact they're all made differently and exactly. one's recyclable, one's not. Some, yeah. some lids are biodegradable, supposedly, and, and, and some aren't. So. Yeah, and they're contaminated with coffee. Does that mean you need to put them in the general waste? I, I think we need, we need to know what to do so we can all get on with doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great note to leave this episode of Think Beginning, Not End. Um, I hope you guys got massive value out of that. Um, I speak to Viv regularly and, uh, yeah, you can see right now, if, you want, if, if you're a brand or you are in supply chain, um, you've got a product on the market and you need advice, um, clearly I would definitely speak to Viv at Bespoke. Um, yeah, thank you so much for making Thanks. the time. I know you're super busy. It's great to So chat. thank you coming on today. Really thank appreciate you. it. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak soon. Um, guys, uh, remember to subscribe, hit notifications, and uh, see you on the next episode. 
Hey guys, hope you really enjoyed this episode of Think Beginning Not End. And if you did, please share it with your friends. And don't forget, you can also follow me over on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Have an awesome day and speak to you next time.